You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today we're sounding the alarm and getting ready to dive as we discuss the 1981 film Das Boot. Yes. Yes, So, this is a German film, um, based on, loosely based on a true story by, from journalist Lothar Guther Buchheim. Mm-hmm. He's during World. He was a German journalist for the Kriegsmarine, naval war correspondent. And during yeah. World War II, he spent time on the U-boat U-96. Yeah. And through his experiences, he made a novel, wrote it into a novel in 1973, called Das Boot, or in English, The Boat. Yep. And it was turned into this movie. It's interesting. There was a. It's a very joint American-German sort of production. Originally, I believe that um, Robert Redford was chosen to be the captain, which I like Redford, but that would have been a terrible idea. And also, I think at one point, Paul Newman was included, when he is way, he would have been way too old at this time. Yeah. But, um... Not to mention, it would have been very painful to watch either one of those two attempt a German accent. German accent. (laughs) But, um, it's like watching Marlon Brando and the Young Lions trying to do a German accent. Nope, nope. No, it's not going to work. But this is all, it's a German film. Wolfgang Peterson's the director, and it's all German actors primarily. And, um, it follows a war correspondent. It's not Lothar Guther Buchheim. It's a man named Werner. Yes. And he is assigned to the... Uh, I believe the boat's also called U-96. But I believe I'm, so, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. And yeah. it's uh, this the w- autumn of 1941. Yes. And, his fir- and we follow his first day. Um, it's right about just the night before they're going to set off. And he meets the captain... And all the crew members are going to a tavern, or is it implied that it's a brothel? It, it's kind of hard to tell. I guess it's probably safe to assume it's both. Both. But it's, it's uh, uh, their uh, uh, last hurrah, so to speak, yes, before and, uh, uh, what for a lot of them is uh, a second or third deployment, right? So you see them uh, blowing off steam, drinking entirely too much. Uh, going wild and it's kind of interesting Um, one of the things the film has you uh, considering as you watch that scene and you watch scenes all through the film is uh, it asks you you what coping mechanisms do people uh, uh, rely upon or fall back on uh, when they are faced with their own, uh, the likelihood that their own mortality is going to uh, come into play, and you do see uh, uh, one, uh, you know, this instance, uh, this crew is uh, in, in partying it up entirely too much. Yes, um, they figure that this is. Uh, they they all think, you know, I, I stand a good chance here of being one of the people that don't come back. And it's kind of interesting because at this particular time in in the war, 
1941, August, I think it was, 1941. This is autumn. Autumn, but, that's right. Yeah. Um, it's uh, like October, November, assuming. At that point, the, uh, uh, the U-boats were fairly successful. It was relatively early on in the in the. Yeah, in the, at this in point the in the war, war, Germany was winning convincingly. Yeah. So it's interesting to see that um, even though that is the case, they all kind of have this feeling that, you know, my number could be up next. Our entire crew, uh, our, uh, the number could be up next because it, it's, it's submarine service. And submarine service during World War II which, uh, you know, to add to the fact that you're surrounded by <laughs> ocean way down there in the depths, um, it's also very cramped, hot, fetid, unhealthy, and extremely stressful environment. And they kind of know this is coming, and they've done it before. So, again, they're, uh, they're, they're all uh, operating under the assumption this may be the last hurrah. Yeah, so. And... The captain knows this. It's a little bit of, I think, of um, leadership wisdom on his part. You know, he, he, he comments he, on it, but he just lets them go. He lets them go. That and, and, this uh, is their coping mechanism, and they may not come back here. Right. Again. And if I if if I were to uh, be very stringent and disciplinarian now, when I need to do it, when we are in the thick of it, uh, they may not respond appropriately because I was such a stickler. Uh, back on shore and you even see that his tolerance um, uh, rises to the level of shrugging off (laughs) drunk crewmen on the way to that party in the car they were completely drunk and blastered they're urinating on cars passing by yes and he just says to Werner you know we have to let this slide because you'll see you'll see why I have to let this slide because our service is very intense. Yeah, and at that party, you also see not one of his members, but a, a captain on another U-boat. The name is Thompson. Yes. And Thompson is also absolutely hammered. But he has to accept a speech because he's just got a medal for service. Right. And in his speech, he is, in the beginning, mocking the Fuhrer. He's saying he's, you know... Uh, celibate he's you know possibly impotent he did but he's done so such great for us you can obviously tell the sarcasm oh in yeah his it's voice. dripping with sarcasm. And there, but you can tell there's a couple of nazi members and one thing about this movie you can really tell who's a nazi in this film <laughs> yeah so this and this one guy obviously has blonde hair and blue eyes yeah. he is giving him a death stare yeah but it is like he's like he better he better slow down or he might get taken off to the gestapo yeah then he starts insulting Churchill. He says, oh, that fat cigar-chomping Churchill, and he uses all sorts of expletives, and everybody's laughing and cracking right. up, and they're letting it go. It's so, almost as if he said, I better throw that yeah. in just to keep the Nazis uh, 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 somewhat happy. From, from tattling on me, right? Yeah. 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 But um, they, then they set off, and he starts taking pictures, and he's taking pictures of people on the deck looking up, but these are young guys, and they yeah. have, they're all clean-shaven. He yes. says captain says don't do that because when they come back if they come back they'll all have beards and now it'll be jarring to see these people in u-boats and they're just like you know 18 19 20 yeah so young yeah and uh, the thing i really like about i read about the making of the film it took them about a year and a half to film it mm-hmm. and they purposefully uh, uh filmed it chronologically 
uh, with the story so that there would be natural beard growth, there would be natural pallor, kind of a pale pallor from not from extended periods with no sunlight. So evidently they probably kept the, kept the uh, casting indoors, make sure they looked the part and appropriate. And you can see they become emaciated too, so I suspect that they probably um, uh, 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 underfed them to get that emaciated look too. Mm-hmm. Just little little touches like that. It really adds to the authenticity of the film. The, the thing that really jumped out at me, just a little detail, just a little detail, was um, the food that they would eat on board. And you can see over time it gets less and less delectable, so to speak. Yeah. And there is one point where uh, the, the officers... By the way, there's no privacy here at all, but the officers, you know, the captain's quarters, so to speak, it's in the middle of the ship, and guys are, uh, crewmen are going constantly going back and forth through there as they're eating. Uh, but uh, what they're eating is very interesting. It's uh, pork, uh, cuts of pork with the hair mm-hmm. still on it. And, uh, and that is extremely authentic. And it looks to be that that wasn't just prop gelatin or anything. That was real pork those guys were eating. Um, very authentic little detail. And that's the one thing you, as they start settling into their day-to-day activities, is like, yeah, you first they get it, and it's, it's this rations that are fresh and just came in. Yeah. But as time goes on, that food's, their supplies are starting to go down. The food is getting you know, naturally starting to mold and decay. Yeah. And you have that. And you also, one of the grossest scenes in the movie is they're having this bread and it is completely moldy. Moldy, yes. Because of the damp conditions. And what one of them is doing is getting a knife and cutting off the moldy parts. Yeah, and of course there won't be much left of it either. Because he's got a big chunk there and it is, it it looks more like a a piece of uh, blue cheese than it does a piece of bread. And he makes some crack about the the mold, mold being, being good, good for, for you because you. you know the old joke that well it, it's natural penicillin right you know so that that was kind of funny uh, again a nice little authentic yeah. piece there you, know? and you realize you see that like, how filthy this U boat is there's I don't believe there's a place to shower in the no. film so you can't the hygiene probably isn't very good there's only one bathroom in the entire ship yep. And also, you see lice, things like lice and crabs. You talked about how they were living it up at this place that's a bar that's also a brothel. Yeah. A lot of those guys are coming back and have the crabs, and yep. they're going to have to have inspections and everything, yep. and it's spreading everywhere. Yeah, and it there's is- absolutely no privacy. It's very mm-hmm. uh, cramped quarters. Um, they, they capture this very well, and you can tell they painstakingly uh, built this set to be an accurate representation of a U-boat. And what I found remarkable is in the, in the scenes, uh, uh, there's a kind of a cyclic nature to the scenes where uh, you have long periods of boredom and tedium and guys getting on each other's nerves and people finding it impossible to... Uh, uh, keep themselves occupied in any way because there's nothing to do and then suddenly uh, a destroyer shows up 
mm-hmm. or there's a convoy and they attack the convoy and they know what's coming after they do that and suddenly just the absolute terror <laughs> of uh, uh, mortal combat and I love the way they juxtapose those two, those are two realities and uh, you, you hear and uh, read about in memoirs all the time just long periods of utter tedium and boredom with the stress of the anxiety that you know it's not going to be that way Any all the time could be broken right and then it is broken violently and they, they do a great job the director does a great job uh in those periods of intense activity during battle of moving that camera through that ship and not only following the characters as they're jumping through um, uh, the narrow passageways or making them ro- their way to the engine room, whatever. But there, there's a few scenes where you are actually the person also jumping through them as yeah. well. And it's just frenetic. In it the, was the, a state-of-the-art camera, I believe, and it emitted such a strong sound that if you watch the movie, all the audio is dubbed. So if you listen to it in German, that's dubbed later, even though it is in German. There's also an English dub, but that the sound yeah. could not be recorded because that would make too much noise. Yeah. As far as I know, that was the sound of basically gyroscopes. Yeah. Um, it was a, a kind of a precursor to, day, to, to today's Steadicam, which doesn't make quite that much noise. But boy, is that incredible. That is just fantastic filmmaking. And what it is interesting because you feel the terror of this there are too many times they're being their depth charges being dropped on them and you always think about submarine movies i mean you uh, navy war world war ii movies you think about from the other side you think about like we'll compare it to a movie that just recently came out greyhound the utter terror on the other side of the u-boats yes that there were like greyhound there's that's the part where the whole thing is like for a certain period of time they don't have the um protection from them so yes. you have to get through unscathed yeah and that terror of the u-boats and this one it's the other way around yeah. and what's so interesting is you think well this must movie must take place 43 44 near the end of the war when no. Germany's this is 1941 this is supposedly when they're winning convincingly america hasn't even entered at the time this movie's taking yeah. place they're all they're all british uh, convoys that they're attacking and yeah it does a great job of showing even at the quote height of success that they had at that time in the in the Atlantic, uh, their position was precarious, and you know it, it shows the advent of uh, sonar and the terror. I mean, I watched this thing with earphones. The the uh, uh, sound architecture is outstanding in this film because the the the, the shots where the crew is listening to the pings from the British sonar um, intercut with the nervous looks on their faces. But the, the, the sonar, if you notice the way it's mixed, it has direction. Mm-hmm. So sometimes kind of the, or the primary uh, blip is, will be on your left and you'll hear it kind of trailing off in a kind of an echoish fashion toward your right. And sometimes it's the other way. So you get a feel for the location of that British destroyer that is trying to track them down, and you get a feel for what it would be like on one of those submarines where the information you're getting as to the locale of your possible uh, uh, source of a terrible death is auditory, and it surrounds you. 
And boy, do they do a good job with that. And in fact, they do a good job with sound in this film, period. Um, you, you grow rather intimately familiar with the sound of the engine room and the sound of those uh, diesel engines when they're running properly. And then it, later in the later uh, later parts of the film, when they're not running properly and they're trying to get them to run properly, they make sure to uh, alter the the rhythmic nature of that sound so you know once again auditorily what's going on. This this film, in a way, is an auditory experience as much as it is a visual experience. And what is interesting because I did we I talked a little bit about Greyhound one of the the scene that I really really can't stand in that movie is this after the U-boat's been successful in taking out a few of the ships on that convoy they get on the radio and start mocking uh, the Tom Hanks and his crew saying haha Americans we kill you first of all logically that is completely stupid because you're giving away your location <laughs> yeah. so if Tom Hanks heard that he's like can we get location yeah. on that? Good, take him out. Yeah. Boom, he's done. Right. But also, from an even an ideological perspective, we think Germany, World War II, you're obviously going to go to the Nazis. But what shows in this movie is a lot of the, particularly in the U-boat crew, and this is supposedly uh, true, historically accurate, was pretty apolitical. They did not like the Nazis. They still, and they still still fought, you know, fought yeah. for the German Nazi party, but... The, they, the captain is very cynical. Like, they're talk, you're listening to a speech by Hitler. He wants it turned off. There's yeah. another one when Hitler's trashing Churchill, and he goes, what's this, all this stuff he's saying about Churchill? He's fat, he's drunk, he's impotent. For being all of this, he sure is giving us a lot of problems, though, isn't he? Yeah. And he's, he's always directing his ire at the one Nazi uh, guy in there. He's he doesn't have a name. A lot of these people don't have names. Yes. But he's a first watch officer, yeah. and he's so different from everybody else. He kind of acts stuck up. Yeah. He's always very prim and proper. He's always standing up straight, and he's always clean shaven. Yeah. And every time they have that back and forth, he's always sort of directing it at him, trying to piss him off. Yeah, you know, and I don't know if the captain is so much. I might have a different read on this. I don't know if he's so much uh, trying to tick him off. Is he's looking at this guy and saying, This guy is very green. He's very ideological, yes, and I do have problems with that, but he's very green. And I know over the course of time, he will uh, lean less on the ideology and lean more on his fellow crew members. And that 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 strikes a, an element I think that you, you find very common in uh, combat memoirs too uh, on all sides of war um, what ends up being the primary driver of action and the primary moral impetus for action isn't the ideology or the country you're fighting for it becomes after a point the other men you were fighting with mm -hmm. and uh, the selfless nature of the actions involved in a crew uh, attempting to save their submarine um, forms bonds that I think are just about impossible to replicate unless you have extreme shared adversity where survival depends on that collective action. 
And when that happens, a certain bond develops between the people that have lived through that experience that uh, almost drowns out and makes irrelevant all of the other factors, including the ideological and the political. And I think the captain realizes that. And he says, just give this guy time. He's going he's gonna to come around to that view. And he does. Yeah, and he, you he, see he, over the course of the film... He uh, stops trying to be clean-shaven, stops trying to wear the proper uniform, stops trying to lecture his crew members on the proper form of German officership. He does that. You see that, and Mm -hmm. the captain's kind of bemusedly looking over in the room while he's lecturing this other guy. But at some point, he realizes, you know, that's all, Mm -hmm. all of that stuff is irrelevant right here in this ship. What's relevant here in this ship is our, our crew members and working together and surviving this. He realizes that after a point. And we cuz we talked about how the book was based on the novel by Lothar Guther Buchheim and he had a he was not pleased was the, pleased with this movie. He felt that the film was sort of German propaganda that they didn't lean hard enough into that conflicts of just German soldiers versus the Nazis. Yeah. And you do think maybe was it a little bit inaccurate that of all the people on the U-boat, only one is a staunch Nazi and the others are just regular people trying to do their job? Should it have leaned more hard into that? It, 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 I think if it tried, it, there, that was, the potential was there. But I, I'm thinking um, the uh, intent of the story was to more, more to illustrate that forming of camaraderie and bonding. Uh, than it was to um, present some kind of political lesson. And, and they might have been able to explore that. And, you know, from what I've read, too, there's disagreement as to the, the, the level of, um, as it were, loyalty to the Nazi party that existed in U-boat crews over the course of the war. Apparently, as things went south... <laughs> yeah, they were the... Um, they crew started were being replaced by greener people who were probably more hardcore believers in the ideology. Yeah, and they had a requirement. They actually had a requirement that they had to be uh, uh, either members of the party or have uh, demonstrated loyalty to the party in some other way. Um, and so, you, yeah, you, you obviously when you do that, you're uh, drawing on a, a lesser pool of experienced people. And the reason they had a lesser pool of experienced people was because the Nazis were treating their uh, servicemen as they typically did. And I must say the Russians did as well during that war as cannon fodder. And they were just throwing them at the front, even regardless of um, probability of success. And so they killed off their seasoned uh, and experienced uh, officers. But at this point in the war, 1941, I think, it's just a guess, I'm not, you know... Uh, expert here, but I'm, I'm thinking the makeup of the crew was probably closer to being accurate because you would have had uh, people from the German naval service that predated the Nazi era uh, being captains and so forth. And uh, uh, like I said, I, I think it would have been st- even though this is a three and a half hour long film, I think it would have been. And this is a short version. There's yeah. a TV miniseries version that goes on for about five, six hours from what I hear. Yeah. Um, I, I think it would have been attempting to do too much. Uh, and 
turning this story about camaraderie into a political debate or forcing that, kind of wedging that in as well, I think it would have been a little too much. It's interesting when you see a German cinema in Germany, how they treat this moment in their history. Um, The more notable German films, World War II, that came obviously after the war, one earliest one I think was The Bridge, which is about a group of young German soldiers at the very end of the war who were recruited to hold this bridge right as the Allies are about to make their final push. Yeah. There's another one called Stalingrad, which is obviously about their view of Stalingrad, and probably the most famous one everybody knows because the Internet is downfall about the last days of Adolf Hitler. Yeah. But it's always, you know, it's very cynical. It show, I mean, obviously, downfall shows a lot of Nazis. Most of the main characters are Nazis. Yeah. But even in Stalingrad and the bridge, there's that cynicism and but more of a particularly in Stalingrad, just how it's just mostly soldiers doing their job, but it always has a downer ending. Downfall, obviously, Hitler kills himself. The, the Germans lose the war. Yeah. The bridge, I believe, most of the the kid soldiers in that movie die. Stalingrad, nearly everyone dies in that movie. In this one, I mean, after everything oh, they goodness. go through, they they nearly escape death there but they're having this grand opening reception back at a naval yard with the band and everything and the ship gets destroyed as an during an airstrike and the captain dies a few Werner escapes with his life but a good deal of the crew members get killed yeah and Ver- Werner watches the captain die after the captain had watched the u-boat sink sink after being attacked yeah that's uh, uh that's certainly a common element in and, and all of these films, uh, more modern German films about the about the war, um, and I think that's reflective of their coming to terms with it, and realizing that you know that war uh, not only did their country um, doom approximately six million people to death, uh, but it threw its own people uh, into the meat grinder with very little concern for those individuals. Um, and uh, to their credit, uh, Germany has faced up to it, its its history, I think, very well. And these films are indicative of that. Yes, and you sp- how they own up to it. Uh, there's yeah. a section uh, dedicated to hate crimes and hate crime imagery, and one of them is outlawing the use of any Nazi ideology, whether it's the swastika or one of the more famous issues is uh, any material by the rock band Kiss. If you are familiar with their logos, they feel Germany feels that the last two S's in their logo is too similar to the SS used in the Nazi SS uniforms. So they, any German album from Kiss, the S looks completely different. Yeah. And and again, um, they're not. They're wanting to make very clear not only that uh, present Germans do not in any way glorify this past, but they're also wanting to send that message to the world uh, that they're repentant for that period in their history. And uh, I, I think there's an interesting contrast there with uh, how other nations that have done horrible things uh, in the past. Uh, deal with their history and i think the the russians are a good example in the present uh present scenario um there are still uh textbooks in in in, uh russia that uh in in some way or another lionize stalin if you can believe that um 
to a lesser extent, Jap- Japan has had trouble owning up to what they did during World War II in China and Korea and other parts of Asia. Um, yet they seem to be, be making some progress in that regard. But still, uh, I think that the Germans stand out in this regard. But I also think uh, it, it come, they're, they're, the intensity of their efforts to come clean about it and portray it in uh, uh, film and, and literature, uh, it, it really is almost unique. The only other example I can think of of a nation that has done a darn good job with a questionable uh, period in its history, uh, South Africa. South Africa uh, uh, went through a, a period of um, The apartheid. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, but they went through a period uh, of intense... Uh, discussion and reparations and things like this for that past and it really did a lot i think to smooth the transition from the apartheid uh, governmental system to the present system so you have to give them credit um and and they had uh people from you know both sides of that racial divide uh taking up that um um, effort Uh, so these two nations stand out for that reason all right, getting close to the end of my questions here. Anything else you want to bring up before we start signing off? Uh, nothing I can think of other than uh, this is one of the few three-plus-hour-long movies that I can think of that it just moves right along. Yeah, it never feels that It doesn't long. feel like it is three and a half hours long. This is a most intense experience. Yeah, and... The director is Wolfgang Peterson, and talk about a complete change in tone. The very next film he did after this was The Never-Ending Story. I mean, you, you couldn't get more jarringly different than that. <laughs> yeah, that's know? true. It's, uh, but, hey, again, that shows you his uh, the depth of his abilities to be able to take on very different genre of film. Kudos to him. Mm-hmm. This thing is just amazing. Yes. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This this program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. You can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, which episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Sing, Alam!